listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. So good to be here with you and uh, privileged to be able to uh, um, uh, share with you. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming forward right now and they've got Bibles. We'd love to get a Bible in your hand. So uh, just raise your hand if you need a Bible and our ushers will make sure that you have one. Uh, that's where we want to uh, camp this morning for the next uh, few minutes is here because this is how God speaks to us primarily is through his word. And so we want to hear from him. But uh, just maybe a quick word on picking up on what uh, Pastor Meldon said about Miller College, the Bible. Miller College has been around since 1932 out in Saskatchewan. And uh, back in 2012, we launched our BC campus because that campus was full. And it looks by God's grace like it might be full out in Sunnybrae this fall as well. We have um, a record amount of students who want to come back, which is incredible. And um, I think we have 24, 25 students already signed up for the fall first years. And so we've got room for about 15 more uh, first year students and we're going to be full. So we would just covet your prayers as we continue to be faithful to God's word. Our vision statement is that uh, Miller exists to develop passionate, relevant servants of Jesus Christ. Who are, who are shaped by the entire scriptures. And our goal, our biggest desire is that our students would love Jesus more when they're done uh, studying God's word at Miller than when they came. And uh, we tell our students, you're in ministry. It doesn't matter where you're at. If you work at the John Deere dealership um, or uh, serve at Starbucks or if you're a pastor or the Lord calls you into missionary work somewhere, you're in ministry uh, we, we, we put that mantle on and we, we want to be so careful that we're not distracted by the, by the allure of this world. It's kind of where I want to uh, track our minds this morning from God's word. So we appreciate your prayers. I brought along, um, I'm, I'm an old dude, so I mean, we used to have, you know, pamphlets and brochures, but the new thing I apparently, this is what young people tell me is the view book. So we, I brought some view books along and it allows you to look at a little bit of stuff uh, about our, our both campuses. One college, two campuses, one in Saskatchewan, and uh, one just up the road about an hour and a half from here. So uh, I think they're going to be on the information table in the back here. And so after the service, if you want to grab one of those. Um, and we'd love for you to come visit. If you're, uh, if you're ever up in the Salmon Arm area and you'd like to drop in for a class, just come in and uh, maybe give us a call. Let, let us know that you're coming. But we'd love to have you sit in one of our classes and uh, have a coffee with you. We'd, we'd, we'd love to do that. Um, turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. That's uh, going to be where our main text is this morning, and uh, we'll be jumping around a little bit. As I was working and uh, just uh, thinking about what I wanted to share this morning or what I felt the Spirit of God wanted me to share with you this morning, I was just once again overcome by the unity of the Bible, how, how, like, how it all fits together. And uh, hopefully you're going to see a little bit of that uh, as, we, as we unpack some texts here in, in Hebrews 3, and then we're going to skip into the Old Testament a little bit as well and reference a few New Testament uh, uh, scriptures too. Um, but when I was uh, in my first year of Bible school, Jesus reached out and saved me. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Even this year at our campus, we've had five of our students give their heart to Jesus. It's amazing that, you know, uh, it's possible for people to grow up in a good family that loves Jesus and loves the gospel go to a good church that preaches the gospel faithfully and still not know Jesus. And so that was my story. I grew up in an evangelist home. My dad uh, was an evangelist. I, um, I sat through a lot of services and a lot of altar calls. 
uh, and yet somehow my heart was cold towards the things of God until my first year of Bible school. And so, so Jesus met me. He reached out and he, he, uh, he, he transformed my life, gave me a new heart. Uh, and that was back in 1980, uh, it was 1984 when Jesus reached out and saved me. But I want to tell you that there was another sort of conversion that happened in my life about uh, 10 or 12 years ago. Back in, in the mid-2000s, I was pastoring out in Winnipeg at Transcona Alliance Church, and, um, and, and, and I was converted to something else. And some of you here will appreciate this. Some of you, some of you have also seen this light. Some of you are still in darkness. And uh, I'm going to you know, try to convince you this morning that maybe you need to see the light. But, but I moved from the darkness of the personal computer to Macintosh. And I bought a MacBook, and I will never go back to a PC. Any, any Mac people in the uh, see, you, you've seen the light. You know of what I speak. And, uh, and so I, I, I love my MacBook. I love, uh, but, but I'm going to make a confession to you this morning. I still kind of like Microsoft Word. It's one of those things that I've just not been able to transfer. I'm not using the, you know, the Apple Pages, um, um, you know, Dot, whatever it is, word processor, that's the word. I still use uh, Microsoft Word. And I remember getting my very first computer uh, when I was uh, out in Prince Edward Island pastoring as a young man. Uh, remember that, um, what was it, an 8086 computer? That's a long time ago. Like in the late 80s, I bought this computer for more money than I uh, thought I could actually spend. My whole tax return went to buy this computer. I think it was $2,500. Had a, a nine pin dot matrix printer, remember those? Some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about. Like if you're under 40, it's like what is he talking about? But it was, it was an amazing thing. And uh, got into the word processing and I started doing my sermons on, you know, printed out on my computer, it was amazing. Um, but it was a glorious day when I discovered that I could actually uh, change the default settings in my Word document. I didn't know that I could do that. And so there was a way that, that I didn't necessarily, when I opened up my Word document, it didn't need to be uh, Times New Roman. Or is, it, was that, is that how it is? Yeah. Or, or uh, like 12, like it didn't need to be 12 points. The margins didn't need to be an inch wide. I could narrow that down to half an inch. And, uh, and I, it, would, it just changed how I, the format of my, uh, of my word processor, my word document. Um, and and to, to have a default setting is, has this idea of, uh, to revert automatically. And so, and so whenever you open up, uh, when, when you change those default settings on your word processor, you pop that page open, it reverts automatically to the way it was designed to open. And if you've changed those settings, it's going to go back, revert back to those settings that you've changed. Now here's the deal. Each and every one of us have a default setting in our life as well. And here in Hebrews chapter 3, we find what that default setting is. And so I'm going to just reference a couple of tech, uh, verses here. And then let me, um, let me talk about... Uh, about this default setting in all of our lives. Every person here this morning has this default setting if left on their own or to their own. If you uh, look at verse 12, first of all, in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, here it is now, leading you to fall away from the living God. Leading you to fall away from the living God. If you skip back one chapter to chapter 2, and verse 1, look at what, what the writer says in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, 
we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Here it is now. Lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away from it. Chapter 3, verse 12, fall away. Chapter 2, verse 1, lest we drift. So what I'd like to do out of this text this morning is make three observations and then uh, towards the end of uh, my time, I want to make one practical observation to you. Or, or sorry, one practical application. So observation number one is this, that drifting is our fleshly default position. Drifting is our fleshly default position. Um, if left to your own, you are going to drift. Uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing now that most of you in this room, I don't know, I don't know uh, most of you at all, I know some of you, but I'm guessing most of you know Jesus Christ. You've given your heart and your life to Jesus. You have a desire to pursue him, uh, to follow him. You've, you've experienced the, the, the grace of the gospel in your life. Uh, but you need to understand this of yourself, that if you don't work hard at fighting for joy in Jesus, you are going to drift. That is the default position of your life. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, for the desire of the flesh are, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so there's this battle that goes on in your life every day. Your flesh desires to do fleshly things, and when we talk about flesh, we're simply talking about the, the, that natural way that you were born uh, with some of those sinful, sinful influences in your life. And so your flesh is, uh, although as a follower of Christ should be crucified on the cross with Jesus, has this uncanny way of crawling off the cross. It's got this uncanny way of raising its uh, dead head and saying, why don't you want to do this? How about this? Doesn't this look attractive over, over here? And Paul says in Galatians 5 that the Holy Spirit lives in you and what the Holy Spirit wants is opposed to what your flesh wants. And these two are fighting with each other. And if you're not careful, and if you're not walking in the Spirit like we're told in Galatians chapter 5, you, friend, brother, sister, are going to drift. Drifting is our fleshly default position. And so we, we need to be aware of that. Uh, and, and when we look at Hebrews chapter 3, let me just give you a little, little bit of context as we come to, uh, and we're going to pick it up in verse 7 here in a minute. The writer of Hebrews is concerned about the believers, Jewish believers that he's writing to, that they would not drift back to Judaism. Um, you need to understand, uh, we live in perilous times here in Canada, wouldn't you agree? There are things that are going on right now that we, we're really not sure how it's going to shake out down the road, even with some of the summer grant stuff that's happening. I'm sure you've heard about that. Uh, and so it's, it's a little bit shaky here, but nothing like the first uh, century church experienced when the writer of Hebrews was writing. These Christians were under the rule of Nero, and Nero was a tyrant and hated Christians and would often kill Christians in a number of different terrible ways. And so for these believers that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, these Jewish believers, they understood and recognized being a Christian isn't all it's cracked up to be when I'm being persecuted for this. And so there was this temptation for them, here it is now, to drift back to their old religious system, their old religious way, because under Judaism, the persecution was much less than the persecution that they faced under Nero as Christians. So there was this temptation to drift. 
Let's go back to the old way. Let's go back to, to the way that used to be, although maybe not fully accepted, better than being a Christian, better than being burnt, dipped in tar and burnt, or fed to the lions. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is trying to make a case, don't drift, don't go back. It's not worth it. And in chapter one and in chapter two, the writer of Hebrews is, is making a case for Jesus, that Jesus actually is better than the prophets that these Jewish believers had put a lot of faith in and well should have. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and, and what we would call the minor prophets, these were men that were called by God to proclaim God's message and, and, we should have, and they should have listened to them. But the writer says Jesus is better than the prophets. The writer says Jesus is even better than the angels that proclaim different things to uh, followers in the Old Testament particularly. Uh, when, when, the, when the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai, that even the angels' proclamation in that kind of a setting, that Jesus is better than the angels. And then he gets to chapter 3 and, and sort of, uh, you know, in a Jewish mind, uh, you know, the, the king of the castle was Moses. Abraham or Moses, but Moses first and then, or Abraham first and then Moses. But, but here in, in chapter 3, in the first six verses, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is even better than Moses. He's better than Moses. So don't drift. Don't wander. Don't, don't uh, walk away. Don't have your heart fall away from the living God. It's your natural propensity, he's saying. The, the natural tendency of your heart is to, to, to drift away from God. So, so the plea by the writer of Hebrews here is, don't do it. Don't drift. Don't fall away from the living God. Because Jesus really is better. And, and the story that we're going to read of, and the quote that we're going to read here out of Psalm 95, is about the waters of Meribah. So let's go ahead, pick it up in verse 7. We'll come back to the first six verses sort of towards the end of my uh, sermon this morning. But pick it up in verse 7. Follow along, Hebrews chapter 3. And here's, uh, here's where you're going to see that potential drifting that can happen in all of our lives. Therefore... As the Holy Spirit says, maybe, can I just pause here? This is such an interesting phrase. Because what the writer of Hebrews is going to do now is he's going to quote Psalm 95. And it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, so then, as King David says. He doesn't say that. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. That's just an affirmation that God's word uh, testifies about itself, that it is from God. And this is what the Holy Spirit says in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. Uh, they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And so it, we're not going to take time, but if you want to just, in your notes, write down Psalm 95. You can go back there later today or sometime this week. Read that psalm, and you're going to see that the Holy Spirit, uh, through the psalmist, is talking about this incident that happened, uh, what we would call, it, it's in the wilderness, at what we would call the waters of Meribah. So here's the story. This is unbelievable. This is, and, and we need to understand the context because 
Understand now, as the, as the Jews are reading this, as the Hebrews are reading this letter that's written to them, they know exactly what the writer's talking about. They, they know exactly, and their, their mind goes right back to the wilderness. So here are the children of Israel. They remember when they first got out of Egypt and they were just a short time after they crossed the Red Sea, they're standing at uh, the promised land and sort of ready to enter and they send in 12 spies, remember that? We used to sing a little song. Um, 12 spies uh, went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad and two were good, right? Uh, and there were, so the reports came back, it's a, it's a wonderful land. I mean, this is a great place, but 10 spies said, it's too scary, let's not go in. And two of them, who are they? Remember who they were? Caleb and Joshua. They came back and said, no, it's, it's good land, let's go in, let's take it. And the, whole, and, and the 10 who said no, they infiltrated the ranks and the whole people said, the whole congregation of the, the Israelites said, no, we're not going to go in. And God said, fine then, you're going to wander. You're going to wander in the desert or in the wilderness for 40 years. And so now think about their wanderings and you can read all about that in Exodus and into, in, in, into Numbers. And here, this story that we find referenced here out of Psalm 95 is Numbers chapter 20, and, and if you do a little, a little bit of chronology from their wilderness wanderings, this is in their 40th year of wandering. Now, the children of Israel knew that they were going to wander for 40 years. God had said that. You're going to wander for 40 years, and then you're going to enter your rest. So, imagine this now. They're wandering for 40 years. They're in their 40th year. They're, they're, they know because God has promised that they would enter the promised land they're almost there because they've wandered for 40 years. And it says that uh, after Miriam had died, Moses' sister had died, that they came and they started complaining because they didn't have water. Now, for 40 years, God had been so faithful to these people. Not once had anybody perished because of lack of provision. There were people who had died, but not because God had not provided for them. And so here, these people are starting to complain in their 40th year of wandering. They're starting to complain that they don't have water, and they start grumbling to Moses and to Aaron, and they say, listen, what's going on here? We need water. And so Moses goes to God and says, God, they need water. They're grumbling. As a matter of fact, their grumbling was so intense that it says in Numbers chapter 20 that they had wished that they themselves had died rather than be here with, Mo with Moses. He said, Moses, what have, you, what have you done? You brought us into the wilderness to die. Now, why Moses didn't say, listen, we're almost there. We're almost, like, we're in year 40. Let's keep going. Persevere. Remember all of God's faithfulness. And God had been faithful, right? Food every morning, manna. Manna that had a, a wonderful taste. It wasn't just, it wasn't just tasteless. It actually had a wonderful taste of honey and coriander, the Bible says. And, and there was provision. As a matter of fact, um, I was reading in, Nehemiah last week, that for 40 years they wandered in the desert, listen to this, and their feet never swelled. Well, I sit in a plane for three hours and my feet swell. And here they wandered for 40 years, and it, the Bible, if, and I believe that the Bible is true, I believe that, that, that for 40 years these people's feet didn't swell. So God is faithful, faithful upon faithful upon faithful to these people, and now they start complaining towards their end once again. I mean, this is sort of their, that is their thing. They complain. So Moses goes and meets with God and God says, go out. 
there's a rock. I want you to speak to that rock and water will come out to feed, to, to, to bring uh, refreshment to the people. And so Moses comes out. I think he's probably angry at the people as well to some degree for their uh, not believing what God had promised for them. But even in this, Moses does something that he wasn't supposed to do. He takes his staff and remember what he does? He strikes the rock two times and water comes out. It seems rather insignificant, but this is really critical because that one act that Moses performed there by striking the rock twice as opposed to speaking to it, there's a difference, right? You look at a rock and you say, water come forth and water comes forth. That's one way. Or I strike it twice and water comes out. The end result is the same. Water comes out. But the consequences for for Moses' disobedience was absolutely massive because God says to Moses, you're not going to enter the promised land now because of that. Because you didn't, here it is, believe me. Just listen to these words. You don't need to turn here, but in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12 says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. It's an amazing story. That, that, that the writer of Hebrews is now referencing. And he's saying to the Jewish people uh, under Nero's persecution, he's saying, don't drift like these people in the, by the waters of Meribah. Now, now, what was the big deal? And this, this brings me to kind of to my second observation here. And observation number two is that drifting begins when our heart is overcome by unbelief. Drifting begins when our heart is overcome by unbelief. Uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to, to Psalm 81, because in Psalm 81, the psalmist references this story as well. So the quote here in Hebrews 3 is from Psalm 95, but Psalm 81, the psalmist references this story as well. And I want to just point a couple of things out uh, to you in this psalm. It's, it's quite incredible. Psalm 81 and verse 7 says this, in distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. So the writer here in Psalm 81 is re- referencing the disobedience that happened in Numbers chapter 20. And then the psalmist goes on and says, "Is Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. You shall, uh, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's a promise. You're going to be thirsty? Open up your mouth. I'm going to fill it with water. You hungry? Open up your mouth. I'm going to fill it with food, with manna. So, so would you listen to me? Because I'm your provider, God is saying. I'm going to take care of you. Open up your mouth and I will fill it. Now watch verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Now watch this promise. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. If they would only listen to me, I would take care of their enemies for them. They wouldn't have to fear. Verse uh, 15, those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him 
and their fate would last forever. Verse 16, here's another promise. But he, God, would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Not just water from the rock. Now, I, I don't know, like if, if I'm really thirsty, I'd probably prefer a glass of water to a glass of honey. But the, 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 this is imagery, right? There, wouldn't, there wasn't actual honey that was going to come out of the rock. But, 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 but what God is saying here is if they would have just trusted me, if these people at the waters of Meribah would have trusted that, that there is a promised land coming, that all they needed to do is open their mouth and I would have filled it, that their enemies would cringe because I would do the battle for them, that I would give them the finest of wheat and I would, as good as that water was, I would give them water that was 10,000 times better than the water they were drinking. It was, it was honey from the rock that would ultimately quench their thirst forever. And so there's this, there's this, this idea that, that, that the, the reason we begin to drift is that we begin to doubt what God has said. And isn't that how sin entered the world? Isn't that exactly what happened with Adam and Eve? They began to doubt what God had said. It, become, it, it begins with unbelief in their hearts. The core issue here that the writer of Hebrews is addressing is one of doubt. I don't actually believe God, which will always lead me to settle for something less. Whenever I choose to doubt what God has said and settle for something else, I'm choosing something lesser, and it's called idolatry. And so we read this in verse 12, Hebrews chapter 3, back in our text, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, here it is now, what kind of a heart? Unbelieving heart. Take care. Make sure that there's not an evil, unbelieving heart in you that's going to lead you away, that's going to cause you to drift. If you skip down to verse 19, the very last verse of the chapter, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Moses didn't believe God. The children of Israel didn't believe that God actually was going to do what he promised to do. And so unbelief entered their life. And they were unable to enter the promised land. I mean, isn't it just so sad? I find it so, so tragic that, that Moses also, along with these people, would start to doubt God right at the very end. And maybe that's just a side note for some of us who are getting a little bit older. I'm going to be 53 next week. That's old. I mean, that's for you guys, like 53 years old. Man, he's an old dude. Even in our old age and as we grow in our walk with Jesus, we need to pray that we'd end well by God's grace. Here's Moses. He doesn't get to see the promised land because of unbelief. And um, there's a warning text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that the, the, the stories of the Old Testament are there as a warning to us, as an example so that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he begins chapter, that, that section in chapter 10, I think it's in verse 6, he says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. And he finishes, he sandwiches in, in uh, and then he lists a bunch of things that they did. And then he, underneath the sandwich, that bottom slice is, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. So how does unbelief and idolatry, how do they play together? This is how they play together. This, this is, this is at, the, at the heart of it is that um, when I start to doubt what God has said to be true, so he, here are two truths. These are 
two of my favorite verses. Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist says, you've made known to me uh, you've made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All right, so this is a promise that God, follower of Jesus this morning here in Kelowna, God, it says, God has, has said, this is the path of life for you. If you're in his presence, there's going to be fullness of joy. Can you get fuller than full? Full is full. So you're going to have fullness of joy and pleasures that last forevermore. Uh, you can't get any longer than forevermore. It reminds me of this second verse that I just love so much is Jesus speaking after he's fed the 5,000 people, 5,000 men in John chapter 6, and he says these words. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes me will never thirst. And so Jesus, in these promises, says, you want to be satisfied? Come to me. If you want to find true joy, Come to me, I will give you true joy. And so, so is, isn't that really what the whole world is looking for? Aren't they looking for satisfaction and joy? I mean, drive past them all uh, in a few hours from now. Um, and I'm guilty. I've, I've actually driven down here on Boxing Day one time to get some deals, right? And they're just, they're temporal fleeting um, satisfactions. They never satisfy fully. But this is what happens. This is, this is how doubt moves to idolatry. If I start doubting, Psalm 16, verse 11, where God says, in my presence is fullness of joy, and at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. If I start doubting that Jesus really will truly satisfy me, I'm going to start looking to be satisfied somewhere else. And the minute I do that, it turns into idolatry. The moment I do that, uh, I become an idolater. And so I, I don't believe that God really is going to satisfy me. I actually don't believe that he's going to be everything for me. Uh, Pastor Melvin was talking about this family. I, I don't know the scenario where this young man is on his deathbed. It's unbelievable. I, it seems like he's young, premature, would seem from a human perspective. What in all the world is going to sustain that family right now in this hour? What's going to sustain them? Their 80-inch TV that they bought last year? It's not going to sustain them. That's not where their joy is going to be. Even in the midst of suffering and sorrow, God will undergird them with the knowledge that there's a better day coming if they know him. That, that there really is this path of life, that there really are pleasures forevermore at his right hand, and that there, are, uh, that there is fullness of joy, that he is the bread of life that will, will satisfy every hunger, and that his, that his water that he offers will quench thirst forever. And so we need, to, we need to wrestle in our own hearts with our tendency towards unbelief. And so let me ask you, how, how's your drifting going these days? Are you drifting? What does that look like in your life? Are you settling for lesser satisfactions than the promises of God and who he said he's going to be for you? I mean, how ludicrous is our wandering anyway? Our, our wandering is so crazy. In Jeremiah chapter Two, just listen to these verses. Jeremiah 2 verse 12 says this. Be appalled, O heavens, uh, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. That's evil number one. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and here's evil number two. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that, that can hold no water. So there's some contextual imagery here. And the imagery is the actions of someone 
uh, abandoning a spring of living, running water, fresh, cool, refreshing, for a broken cistern. Um, I, I grew up in Germany. Mom and dad are missionaries there. But when we were on furlough, we used to live in, in just outside of Brandon, Manitoba. And uh, on this little acreage, mom and dad would have rain barrels. And, um, and I'm guessing here in Kelowna, it gets pretty dry in the summers. Anybody have rain barrels at their house that collect a little bit of rainwater? No, that's not a, a thing out here. Well, on the prairies, you collect as much water as you can in order to water plants. And so my mom and dad had barrels at two uh, corners of their house. And when it rained, these barrels, it didn't take a lot of rain. It, they would fill right up. And then my mom would use this rain, these rain barrels of water to water her plants. It would save from uh, grabbing water out of the well. Now, now, right after rain, that water was quite refreshing. It was nice. But if you left that water for three or four weeks and there was no rain in between, let me just tell you what that water looked like. It was brackish. It was dark. There was scum. And there were bugs. And it was turning green. And it kind of stank a little bit. Now, can you imagine? I'm mowing the lawn out in our little acreage. And, and I don't know how, why this is. But, but you know, the, the year after we left, my dad bought a riding, ride-on mower. Up until then, it's like, push, here's a 19-inch push mower, do three acres of lawn. So I'm out there one Manitoba hot, Manitoba summer. It's 32 degrees outside, and I'm dying of thirst. And I go to one of these rain barrels. It hasn't rained for three or four weeks, and I see the water in there. And right next to the water, there's a tap. And there was, actually, a little tap that ran inside into our well. And I look at this brackish water, and I say, you know what? I'm going to just drink from this water, as opposed to turning on the tap where there's fresh, cool, refreshing water. That would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? You would say, well, you need to check your temperature or something, because something's not quite right with you, Steve. Now, what's more crazy about this story here in Jeremiah, that this imagery that Jeremiah uh, portrays, is that, that the cisterns that uh, these people were going to and abandoning the spring of water, and back in, 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 in the... The, the, you know, the countryside where, where Jeremiah is writing this. I mean, the spring was the most reliable, the most refreshing source of water. It was dependable and it was, it was cool and it was clear. It was satisfying. It says that these people dug cisterns for themselves. Here's the key, the key issue of this. Cisterns that were broken and didn't hold water. I mean, it's one thing to drink brackish water. It's another thing to go to a cistern that's dry pick up a handful of dust, put it to your mouth and say, my, my, this dust is so satisfying. It sure quenches my thirst. I mean, it is absolutely ludicrous. Isn't that crazy? And yet that's what Jeremiah says. My people have committed two evils. They've left this spring of living water. In my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never thirst. Whoever believes me will never hunger. So come to me. No. No, I'm going to doubt that, God. I'm going to go to the cistern that's dry. I'm going to take a handful of dust, and I'm going, to, I'm going to just hope that this dust is going to quench this deep, deep thirst that I have. How crazy is that? And it all begins with doubting God. It all begins when I start doubting the promises that he's given, the fact that everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross is for me today. And the hope of eternity, unbelievable. And I abandon that for a lesser satisfaction. This truth needs to grow such deep roots into our life that we 
can fight the allure of the world's temptations, that Jesus and all that he is and all that he's promised is 10,000 times more satisfying and joy-giving than the attractions, the glamours, the draws, the appeals, the charm, the fascinations that this world has to offer. So, are you believing God these days? Because if you're not, I'm going to tell you, you're probably drifting. If you're not actually believing what he said in his word, the promises that he's given you, you're probably drifting somewhere. So, so understand that the propensity of your heart is to drift, that drifting begins with unbelief. Now, here's my third observation, and then I want to make it practical. Uh, drifting, which begins with unbelief, leads to a hard and calloused heart. Look at verse 8. It says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Skip down to verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then one more verse, down in verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the as in the rebellion. And, and it's interesting that a hardening of heart is associated with hearing his voice. That if we have a hard heart, we're not going to be able to hear God. If you have a hard heart, it means that it's calloused. And you won't be able to feel things anymore. We were out at St. Ambrose Beach up in just north of Winnipeg for a, a camp out with our family a few years ago. And we'd set up camp and the tent was set up and we, I pulled the, the, uh, our, our camp grill out and I was, I was um, cooking Smokies. And I don't know what possessed me, but these things are sizzling on our grill. And, and in, a, in a moment of thoughtlessness, I reached down and I, I wanted to flip these Smokies and I did it with my finger. And it burnt my finger immediately. And now a lot of times when you burn yourself, you get one of those soft blisters and it pusses up with, you know, well, it, it bubbles up with pus. Not this one. This, is, this was a strange kind of a burn. I, I'm, not a, a, you know, I'm not a physician or a nurse. I don't know what kind of degrees of burns are. But this, this particular burn turned hard almost immediately. And the tip of my finger was just hard. And it was hard for about three weeks. And, and I just, I remember sitting in my office and feeling my finger because it felt so weird because I'd rub it and I could feel nothing. It was just this hard surface that had burnt onto the tip of my finger. When we drift because of unbelief, the Bible says our heart gets hard. We're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, by the allure that sin has. And when my heart is hard, I'm not going to be able to hear God anymore. So if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And if you have a hard heart, ask God to soften it. Our heart should be so tender so that when his spirit convicts us with that small, and, and you know, if you know Jesus this morning, you know what that conviction is about. That conviction is the th very thing that brought you to the foot of the cross, right? Brother, sister. And then as followers of Jesus, when we, when we sin, when we, when we drift, and the spirit gently just convicts us, maybe it's through a word that Pastor Melden has here, maybe it's during your group time, when you get together with other people and, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God starts pressing in on your heart and you hear, sense his voice and he's softening your heart. So when he speaks, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So our natural propensity is to drift. Drifting begins with unbelief when we start doubting what God has said to be actually true and we settle for, le for lesser things which makes us idolaters. And when we start to drift, we become hard in our heart. So what do we do? What do we do? 
Well, the answer is in here, and I, I, it gives me great joy to show you what we need to do. The first thing I just want to show you in verse 12, it says, take care, brothers. Take care so that this doesn't happen. And, and, and you should ask, well, how do I take care, Steve? Verse 1. Verse 1 of this chapter. Therefore, so, we're, so we're, we kind of worked through it. Now we're going to come back to the very beginning of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling, this is how you take care. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then the writer of Hebrews starts to unpack how Jesus actually is better than Moses. That was really, really, really important to these people. And I would just maybe throw this out to you this morning. Whatever you esteem is really valuable here in Kelowna this morning, in your household, in your life, might not be Moses, but it's something. Can I just throw this out to you this morning that Jesus is better than that? Whatever it is, whatever's starting to crowd your heart with, with the allure of being really, really good like Moses, not that Moses was a bat, Moses is good, but Jesus is better. And so there might even be legitimate things that are captivating your heart, blessings that God actually wants you to have, but now they're becoming idols in your life, and you need to understand that Jesus is better than that. So, so how do you take care? Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to, uh, leads you to fall away from the living God. The way you take care is by considering Jesus. And it's interesting the kind of wording that the writer of Hebrews gives Jesus here. He's the apostle and the high priest. I think this is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is actually called an apostle. He's an ambassador. He's come from heaven. We know that, right? Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to this world. And he's our ambassador sent from heaven to us and for us. But he's also the ultimate high priest. Now, let me, we, I, I'm going to land the plane here because time is moving on. But can I just say this to you? Read Hebrews chapter 10. This is a great week. This is such a critical week. Not that, not that the cross should be emphasized more this week than any other week of the year. The cross is central to everything we do. The gospel is central to everything that we are. But there is a heightened awareness this week, right? And, and that's, that's a good thing. So read chapter 10 of Hebrews sometime and see the work of Jesus. And we read in Hebrews chapter 10 that day after day, the priests would sacrifice animals uh, as a sacrifice, a sin offering. And you know what the high priest's primary role was? To, to make atonement for the sins of the people. It was his primary role. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the Holy of Holies and he'd sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of a perfect lamb. And here we're told in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, that Jesus is our high priest, the ultimate high priest. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it says that when Jesus made his one sacrifice on the cross 2,000 years ago, was buried and rose again, that he sat down on the right hand of his father because that sacrifice put an end to all sacrifices. Because there on the cross, he took all of your sin and all of the, the stuff that has been wrong in your life, and not just your life, but the sin of the world. He took it upon himself and became our substitute on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the glories of the gospel. And so the way that we fight drifting in our life, the way that we fight unbelief in our life, the way that we fight our heart getting hard, hard is by considering Jesus, the ambassador from heaven, the, 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 this, this messenger sent, this apostle from heaven rather, our ambassador, 
and his work as the high priest. And when he says it is finished, the veil in the temple was torn too and gave us direct access to our Heavenly Father because the only way we can have that is if we're righteous, completely righteous, and Christ's righteousness is now available to any person that would call. So, so maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've come here week in and week out for a while. Maybe you've gone to church all your life and you might be like one of those students at, at Miller College of the Bible that has heard it, but they've never submitted their hearts to, to the work of, of uh, regeneration, of God giving them a new heart. And maybe that's you today. And if, if, if that's you, then today would be a great day to say, Lord Jesus, I need your righteousness in my life. You are my high priest. I've, I've been drifting all my life and I need a course correction. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you know Jesus, but you've been drifting and you need to renew in your heart, a conviction that I need to consider all that Jesus is for me and all that he's done for me. Now, here's how it plays out. There's, we sang a hymn, and I, I thank the worship team for singing it earlier. Look how this plays out for, for you and me. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. See, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts of us. So, so the propensity, the proneness of your heart is to drift, to, to walk away from God. Follower of Jesus, remember that tomorrow when you go to work. That, 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 that your flesh wants to drift away from God. And what's gonna, what is it that's going to shackle your heart to God? His goodness. Now, on our campus, sometimes our students sing, let thy grace like a fetter, and that's good, but I like the word goodness. This is the way the original writer wrote it. And the reason I like this is because, because, because it's God's goodness that should shackle my heart from wandering, shackle my heart to him. And the way that his goodness does that is by me considering all of that, all that he is for me. So, so, so this idea of considering Jesus is considering his goodness, all that he's done for me, all that he accomplished on the cross. And so, brother, sister, if I can just urge you today that this is, this is, a, this is an urgent thing because it says, therefore, encourage each other today while it's still called today. And it's strange that the writer of Hebrews would say, encourage each other every day while it's still called today because he references the word every day twice, like, Encourage or exhort one another every day, while, as long as it's still called today, is strange. And I, there could be a number of reasons. I think one of the reasons is don't delay. Today is the day that you need to consider Jesus. And I think maybe just, I know my own heart, I think that it probably takes less than 24 hours for my heart to drift. So today, encourage each other. So, so, so there's urgency, do it today, and then do it together. Not only should you consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest, so that your heart doesn't drift. But you should do that together because it says, therefore, encourage each other. Exhort. It actually says exhort. Exhort is a stronger word than encourage. The idea of exhorting is, is this pushing each other. It's almost like being in each other's face. So how's that going for you? Do you have people in your life? Do, are you plugged into one of your group times here? Is that what they're called, group times? Group, group time. Is that part of your life? Because it says here that if that's not happening, chances are you're drifting. You need each other. You've been designed to be connected in community so that you can be in each other's face, that you can exhort each other. 
so that if you start drifting, what can your friends, brothers, sisters do? They can pull you back. It's the whole idea. It doesn't take very long for us to drift. So let me ask you, how are you doing with this practice? What does considering Jesus look like in your life? What does reminding yourself of the work of the cross look like in your life? I would just conclude by saying you need to be so saturated with the truth of the gospel every day. You need to be preaching the gospel to yourself every day. You need to preach the gospel to those people in your group times together. Remind them of the cross. You need to consider Jesus so that your heart doesn't drift with unbelief and become hard. So may the Lord give you, Kelowna, Harvest Kelowna, all the fortitude to plant that flag afresh today to say, Lord Jesus, I want to consider you the author and finisher of my faith. You're the apostle from heaven. You are my high priest. Thank you for all that you've done. So Father, I thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us. And Lord, we, we would admit, and I admit this morning, that my heart so easily starts to wander, so easily starts to drift, and I need your help, Lord. This is not a sermon for these people here today primarily. It's for my own heart. And so, you know my own drifting and my own wandering. I pray that I would believe the things that you've said. I pray that that unbelief would be short-lived in my life, and when it is that I'd have friends, brothers, and sisters in my life who would draw me back to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.